Today we were going to return to our sermon series in Deuteronomy, which I've truly loved. I think Deuteronomy is one of the most beautiful books in the Bible, and I've really enjoyed showing you all the connections to the New Testament. Deuteronomy alongside of Psalms is actually the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. But I have decided today to preach in the Psalms. The Psalms is a book of prayer, and it teaches us how to pray. And what makes the Psalms particularly unique is that you see a window into the emotional life of a believer. And in the Psalms, you see these really intense emotions, so that the Psalms is teaching us how to experience these emotions. It's teaching us how, what to do with our emotions. And today we're going to look at grief. We're going to look at grief. Our church is uh, going through a season of change and loss. And one response is grief. I know that not everyone in this room is necessarily feeling grief. Some of you are feeling shock, confusion anger, um, disappointment. And those are all legitimate responses. And they're not necessarily at odds with each other. Our emotions are very complex and they often layer one on top of the other. But whether or not you are feeling grief today, I want you to know that everyone in this room, everyone, through the course of their life, is going to experience pain and loss and sorrow. And so, what do we do with that? I want to provide some instruction and help. Now, when we look at the Psalms, what are called the Psalms of Lament, the Psalms of Sorrow, is actually the most prevalent of all the Psalms. We see the psalmist, particularly David, Weeping all the time. His tears just flow. And that encourages us to, that we can cry too. I think that's a deep comfort and encouragement for us. These, this last, uh, past year, the Psalms have been very precious to me. And I have found much comfort in them. We're not gonna look at any particular Psalm today, but I wanna show you a general theology of grief from the Psalms. And so here are my three points. Number one, we're going to look at tears. Number two, we're going to look at comfort. And then number three, hope. Okay, so tears, comfort, hope. So first point, tears. Psalm 42, verses 3 and 4, which is the first psalm I have printed for you in the bulletin, says, My tears have been my food day and night, While they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. So the first thing here is we see the intensity of grief. Notice the metaphor. His tears have replaced food. Instead of eating and drinking, he's weeping. And also notice that this is not 
some light momentary thing, but it goes on and on. Day and night, the psalmist says, his tears flow. As I said, the book of Psalms is a picture of the authentic life of a believer. And the whole book is filled with tears. The dominant emotion in the Psalms is grief. And therefore, what are the Psalms telling us? It's telling us that we should expect tears in the Christian life. Tears are not an indication that you are failing in the life of faith. It is actually an authentic mark that you are walking in faith. A lot of Christians struggle with this. And uh, there's a little myth that we tell ourselves that if I'm a good person, if I'm a good Christian, then God won't let anything really bad happen to me. There will be no occasion for deep sorrow. But the Bible says that's not true. Because grief and faith go together. Because why is there grief? Why is there grief in this life? Because this world is broken by sin. And not just our own individual sins, but the sins of the whole world. And therefore, grief is not some sort of rude interruption in the normal course of affairs. It is woven into the very fabric of this life. And therefore, it is inescapable. It is unavoidable. You cannot be safe from suffering. Because what is grief? Grief is the pain of losing something that is precious to you. And the greater the loss, the more intense your grief. Or to put it another way, grief is how love responds to loss. And so, how then do you avoid grief? Well, you would better make sure that nobody you love dies or gets injured. But how would you ensure that? You can't. Well, if that's the case, then you better make sure that you love nothing at all. Give your heart to nothing. Commit your heart to nothing because love makes you vulnerable. The cost of safety is to love nothing. And that is a different kind of death. That is a different kind of agony. You cannot be safe if you love. There's this uh, amazing scene in, uh, in this movie called Wind River. Wind River came out, I think, about five years ago. And um, it starts with this uh, crime scene where a young woman has been murdered. And the the rest of the movie is this uh, sort of detective story where they're trying to figure out what happened, who did it. And in the middle of the movie, there's this really tender scene where uh, the actor Jeremy Renner, he plays a character who um, is not exactly a policeman, but he's part of the investigation. And he's also a good friend of the family. 
And he goes to console uh, the father of this young woman. And the father is in deep mourning. And the character Jeremy Renner, he says this to the father, and it's really profound. I want you to listen to it. He says, the bad news is that you're never going to be the same. You're never going to be whole, not ever again. You lost your daughter. Nothing's ever going to replace that. Now the good news is, as soon as you accept that, and you let yourself suffer, then you allow yourself to visit her in your mind, and you'll remember all the love she gave, all of the joy she knew. It's a great quote. And what the quote is saying is that grief acknowledges and honors the preciousness of what has been lost. The only way to avoid grief then is that you would have to erase the memory of what you lost. You would have to unlove. You would have to detach yourself from that person that you loved. You see, grief and love are woven together. And when you understand that, you will understand my next point, and you're not going to like it. Which is that as a Christian, you are going to weep more, not less. Your sorrow as a believer in Christ will be deeper and greater because you will love more. Because you will care more. And you will commit yourself more. There's a classic passage on becoming a Christian in the Bible, which is Ezekiel 36, 26, where God says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. What does it mean to have a heart of flesh? It means, first of all, that you will have a heart to love God. But second of all, it means that God will give you a heart to love others. So that you will be more sensitive to the needs of others. So that you will be more sensitive to the sorrows of others. So that your heart will become more of a heart. And you will feel the the pain and the evil of this world more keenly. When you uh, read the Gospels, when you read the Gospel accounts, why is it that Jesus was always weeping? Isaiah 53.3 says, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Do you remember that scene um, in Luke when Jesus is at, I'm sorry, it's in John, when Jesus is at Lazarus' grave? It's a remarkable passage. Jesus knows in just a few minutes there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a happy ending to this story. And yet Jesus is so present in that moment. He's so attuned. His heart is so bound to the grief of his friends that he's just pulled down into sorrow. And he weeps because he is profoundly sad. It is remarkable. I want you to know that Jesus weeps 
not despite his perfection, but because he's perfect. Because he has a perfect heart of love. And therefore, the more you become perfect, the more you become like Jesus, the more you're going to weep. The more tears there will be in this life. So that's the first point, tears, the the reality of tears. Secondly, comfort. I want you to know that grief is agony. It's an indescribable pain. And it feels like you're dying. It feels like your heart is just coming apart. And when you're in it, when you're in it, you just want it to stop. There's another movie... um, called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's a, it's a really complicated title, but it's, a, it's such a sweet movie. It came out, I think, about 20 years ago. And um, in the movie, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, they play this um, romantic couple who are very much in love. But they break up, and they're in absolute agony. And in the movie, they decide to get a procedure. It's a sort of sci-fi movie where you can erase the memory of the relationship because it's so painful. But as you can imagine, it doesn't quite work out. And all of these messy problems happen as a result, and that's basically the plot of the, of the movie, the, you know, how those problems are worked out. I think the movie is really wise because the movie is telling us there is no way to escape the agony. We want somehow to stop grieving. We want to escape. We want to forget because it's so painful. This is why some people, many people, turn to alcohol or other substances or or addictions to cope. This is why people try to numb themselves with entertainment or um, distractions But I want you to know, this is very important, if you try to suppress your grief, you are not getting rid of the pain. You are just pushing it underneath, and and it will stay inside of you. And unprocessed, it will come out in other ways, unhealthy ways, and it will control you. Instead, the Bible says, you have to take your grief, and you have to give it to God. Look again to Psalm 42. In the, in the final line, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. This is very important. You have to pour out your emotions. You have to pour them out. Not just a little bit. Not a str- little stream or, or a dribble. But you have to pour your heart to God in prayer. And for a lot of Christians, this is a new concept of prayer. Because, you know, for a lot of us, we think of prayer as a kind of laundry list of requests. Lord, I need this. Lord, I need that. And Jesus says, that's that's good. Bring your petitions to the Father. But if that's all your prayer is, then you are missing out on a huge dimension of prayer. And perhaps that is why your prayer life is so dry. 
Because when you look at the Psalms, what do you see? The psalmist is just pouring out his heart to God. And when you do it, it seems a little bit inefficient. Because what are you saying? You're saying, Lord, I'm so sad. My heart is broken. And you're not necessarily asking God for anything. You're just saying, Lord, this is how I feel. I feel like this. I feel like that. And it doesn't feel like you're accomplishing anything as you pray. But think about it. This is the way friends and intimates talk with each other. When friends or spouses speak to each other, they sort of just talk in circles. They sort of, they just pour out their unfiltered thoughts and feelings and it's messy, it's kind of repetitive. They look at this aspect, they look at that aspect. What are they doing? They are unpacking, they are processing their emotions. I want to tell you a little secret. This is how you experience intimacy with God. The key to intimacy in prayer is to pour out your heart to Him. Because your emotions reveal the innermost parts of your heart and God wants your heart. And when you pray like that, when you pray like that, you will experience the comfort of God. Because how do you comfort someone in grief? You don't try to solve their problems. You don't say, cheer up, look on the bright side of things. Please don't do that. What do you do? You just spend time with them and you listen to them. You just sit with them and you cry with them. You enter into their emotions. You share in their sorrows and you say, I'm sad too. The most astonishing thing is that the Bible says this is what God has done for us. Look at the second Psalm, Psalm 56, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. This is tossing in bed. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I want you to know that our tears matter to God. He pays close attention to them. Each of our tears is precious to him. He keeps count of all of our sleepless nights. And in each moment, he is not distant, but he is near. And all of those moments of anguish are permanently etched in his mind, for he records them in his book. He remembers them forever. This is who God is. I want you to know that God also welcomes our questions and doubts. Look again to Psalm 42, the second line. He says that his tears are constantly asking, where is your God? Where is your God? The Bible is so intellectually and emotionally realistic. Because our griefs make us doubt. It makes us doubt the reality of God. It makes us doubt the goodness of God. Because when people grieve, the question on their mind is, where is God in all of this? 
Why didn't God prevent this? Why doesn't God intervene now? If God loves me, if he has any power at all, he wouldn't allow this tragedy to happen. I want you to know that the Psalms are remarkable because not only do they show us how people speak to God when they are in distress, but the Psalms also shows us that God actually invites us and welcomes us to speak to him thus. Remember, the Psalms are model prayers. We're supposed to pray like that. It doesn't seem pious. It doesn't seem reverent. But it's realistic. It's honest. And God wants us to be honest to him because... God wants our hearts. And therefore, you don't have to clean up your thoughts and your emotions when you go before God. You don't have to be polite and courteous. You don't have to say theologically correct things. Just go to Him. Just pour out your heart to Him because your tears matter to Him. I want you to know that the hidden the hidden grief, the hidden gift of grief is intimacy with God. If you use your grief well, if you don't waste your tears, you will connect to God in a way that you have never experienced before. Do you know why? Because grief empties you. Grief just guts you. It leaves you raw and empty. And in that place of extreme emptiness and helplessness, you will discover the strength of God. That is the most precious thing in this life, which is the presence of God. Grief is a door that if you allow yourself to walk through it, you will discover that God is near and his intimacy Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The final point is hope. In our grief, we need comfort. We need to know that we're not alone. That God has not abandoned us. But we need more than that. We need to know that our tears is not the end. We need to know that there's a future, that there is hope. I want you to look at the final psalm, Psalm 126, 5 through 6. It says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What is the relationship between the seed and the harvest? What is the relationship between the seed and the harvest? It's not just that one happens to follow the other, but there's a direct connection. Do you understand? There is no harvest without the seeds. The seeds are essential. And therefore, what does that mean? The Bible tells us a deep mystery. That our future 
joy depends in some profound way upon our tears now. You have to shed tears in this life. And every tear is a seed. Every tear is like making a deposit in the bank. And in the bank, it grows with compounding interest. It grows and grows until one glorious day, you will make an enormous withdrawal. Do you know what that means? It means that your griefs are not for nothing. It means that your tears do not mean that you're cursed. Your tears mean that you are blessed. Because God will transform your tears into a future harvest of joy. It means that every tear in your life has design and purpose. Every tear is infinitely precious. In this life, we try so hard. We try so hard to avoid grief and loss. Who would purposely inflict sorrow upon their life? But our Heavenly Father, because of His infinite wisdom and love, He brings into our lives seasons of deep sorrow. Not to destroy us, not to harm us, but to do us good. It's amazing. Let me encourage you some more. I want you to think about the size difference between the seed and the harvest. The size difference. The seed is such a small little thing. But it produces this great harvest that is completely out of proportion to what you had put into the ground. One of my uh, favorite books is um, the Little House in the Prairie book series. I have read both of them to my boys. And uh, I love them. It's the story of Paul and Ma Ingalls and their children, and their homesteaders. And they're really hardy. They have this like frontier spirit, and they're very resilient. And they're resilient because every time something bad happens, and all kinds of disasters and setbacks happen to them, they're able to see the good in it. And all throughout the book series, there's this expression that keeps coming up that they say all the time, which is, there is no great loss without some small gain. No great loss without some small gain. So, for example, um, in one of the books, uh, they lose their entire wheat, wheat crop because of this enormous grasshopper infestation. And uh, the grasshoppers are so thick upon the ground that they just cover the ground. And then Ma Ingalls, in the middle of this tragedy, she notices that the chickens are just so happy because they're just pecking away and they're eating all the grasshoppers. And so she says, right, we don't have to feed the chickens for a while. And she says, there's no great loss without some small gain, right? There's, there's no great tragedy in this life without there being at least a little consolation that you can find. And that is true. But I want you to know that the Bible says something far greater. The Bible says that in Christ... There is no great loss without an even greater gain. The Bible says each tear will produce a hundredfold increase in joy. 
Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, Whoever has lost houses or brothers or sisters, for my name's sake, will receive back a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, This light momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says you cannot compare them. Let me make one more observation, and then we're going to get to the last point, because I really love this metaphor of the seed and the harvest. I want you to notice that there is always a passage of time between the sowing and the harvesting. Always. The seeds don't just immediately produce a crop. But it takes time. It has to grow. And I want you to know that that gap in time, enduring that gap in time, takes faith. Because you don't see the results right away. And for a long time, your grief just seems pointless. Just seems like this tragic loss. There's no meaning or purpose behind it. But I want you to know it's growing. You can't see what's happening because it's subterranean. But God, through your tears, is producing a great harvest. My last point is a question. Why should our tears be redeemed? If you think about it, grief is the fitting consequence of human sin. And so why should we be spared? Isn't sorrow and suffering what we justly deserve for this broken world that we have created? Here's the answer. On the cross, Jesus Christ stood in our place. On the cross, Jesus took into his very heart all of our griefs and all of the sorrows of sin. And because he was stricken with infinite suffering and sorrow on the cross... We are redeemed. That's the gospel. I want to read to you Isaiah 53, 3-5. Listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. The Bible says that Jesus saves us by bearing our sorrows. I want to close with a final reflection. When you read um, John chapter 19, you will notice a curious detail about Jesus' death. The text tells us that a Roman soldier approached Jesus on the cross 
and to confirm that Jesus was dead, the soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side. And verse 34 says, At once there came out blood and water. Now, you need to know that's very unusual. That blood and water just flowed out from Jesus' body. If you uh, read the commentaries, according to medical experts, the physical agony of Roman scourging and crucifixion, when you combine that with traumatic blood loss, it produces this very intense stress upon the body. And what happens sometimes is that the strain is so great that the heart bursts apart releasing large quantities of blood and water. And people believe that perhaps that is what happened to Jesus on the cross. And that was his cause of death. When I read that, I started to cry. Because Jesus Christ loves us so much, his heart literally broke apart on the cross. He was so grieved that it didn't just feel like his heart was coming apart. It actually happened. God loves us so much that on the cross, in Christ, his heart was broken. He died of a broken heart so that we might be redeemed from our sins. So that He might give us a future harvest of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many of us are in anguish. We're so grieved. Would you comfort us and draw near to us Would you notice our tears? Would you remind us that you love us? And we pray. We pray that we would respond with faith and trust and obedience knowing that you are producing for us, for this church, a great harvest of joy. And that one day Jesus will return and he will set everything right and everything sad will come untrue. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.